Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the first edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is electronic marketing, harnessing the web's whiz-bang. As all of you are aware, the Internet has become a great source for marketing. We're going to discuss how lawyers can use the Internet to market their law practice. But first, we'd like to make a few general points about marketing. Marketing is a long-term process. Even professional marketers never know exactly what aspect of their marketing plan has given them great results. So it is important to plan your marketing strategy, budget your marketing strategy, and be patient about the time frame in which you will get your return on your investment. You might often find, I think, Jim, that the uh, plan you make becomes superseded very quickly by the reality. Uh, I know that the plans that that we've made here uh, in our company, the the plan happened, the plan was gone in about six months, uh, but it's it's still a good idea starting out to do put something in writing. And, and then once you have that kind of a, a plan and you go forward with your marketing, you want to make sure you measure your return on investment. Most lawyers have a client intake form, but I find that very few of them actually use it, measure the results, figure out what's working for them and in what percentages, and then adjust their marketing accordingly, which is what you need to do. And on that form, make sure you don't just ask how they heard of you. Ask additionally if they visited your website, because if they have, your website has collateral value, and you need to take that into account. It's very important that they might have heard of you from a, a friend or another attorney, but that they went to your website for verification and validation of who you are and what you could do for them. Sharon, I think you'll find that the younger consumers in particular, even though they may not acquire information about you, they may get you through a referral or something like that, they'll check your website out just to make sure that they view you as a, a real player because you have a website. Absolutely, and that they feel comfortable with you, and they like that smiling face if you have your photo up there too. Uh, one reason why we want you to think about going to the net and, and using electronic marketing is that the old ways of marketing, they simply aren't working anymore. In the old days, lawyers spent a lot of money on big ads in the yellow pages. Uh, newspapers they used, they spoke to civic groups, they did all this kind of stuff, and there was kind of a very set routine. But that's not working anymore. Newspapers are now dropping. Last year, circulation for the most newspapers dropped about an average of 2.1%. And if you start adding that up year by year, that's a whole lot. Everything is online. Everybody's ordering pizza, ordering their movie tickets, arranging their vacation. So if everybody is online and that's how they find things, and I know that our six kids, um, they're not using anything but online to find things. They haven't picked up a Yellow Pages in over a year, and I think I've only used it once in the last year. So if everybody else is online, that's where you need to be. I agree with that, Sharon, although I would note that Yellow Pages still have some power for certain limited types of practices. Things like workers' compensation and DUI, where you may have an older clientele who is, is searching and will still use the Yellow Pages, or you may have someone with the type of legal matter that they don't want to ask their friends and relatives for referrals. There may still be a place for certain types of consumer-oriented practice in the Yellow Pages and traditional media, but I agree with you that the trend is going to remain the same, that we're going to see less reliance on that and more on Internet. I'd like to see the landscape in 10 years, Jim, because I think that's right. I think there's going to be an aging out of the people using print, uh, and while it still may have some residual value to use the, the yellow pages, I doubt if there will be any value 10 years down the line.
Well, obviously the most critical component of Internet marketing is your law firm's primary website. We'll talk about other things you can do on the Internet, but your law firm needs a general website that is consumer-oriented or, or client-oriented, I should say. There may be some practices that focus entirely on business clients and, and not on consumer clients. And so I'd first say that the old phrase about websites is content is king is still valid in my opinion. You will find a lot of websites that focus mainly on flash and graphics and style. Uh, but for law firms, we're still a serious business, and content is Im incredibly important. You want to list things like every one of your practice areas, even those you don't do a lot of. You want to make sure it's clear about your geographical area where you're located, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And it's also good to have some more lengthy text uh, that can be uh, indexed by the search engine. So I still think a law firm website is a little bit of a unique thing. A lot of people ask, do I want to do it myself or have a professional designer? Uh, and, and we'll talk more about that. But I think always, if you can afford it in any endeavor in life, hiring a professional will reap returns and benefits. If the critical thing that I find, especially small firm lawyers, sometimes want, want to have a website that's uh, built as a part of one of the major legal uh, web hosting services or something like that, but it's critical for you to have your own domain name. If I was to say the number one thing about setting up your site is to get your domain name, and that's tougher now because, especially if your name is something like Smith & Smith, because a lot of the domain names that law firms would like to use have already been gobbled up, but you want to have a domain name as reasonably short so that you can promulgate that name to others and pass it along to others. So your your last name with law as a solo practitioner, maybe a geographical listing with law, maybe if you've got several lawyers and you use a couple of their names and law firm or law or just a couple of their names, .com is definitely the preferred, although I do hear of lawyers that are, are going with the .pro, but I think .com is what I'd want for my law firm domain name. And then finally, after I've spent the money to set up my domain name and I want it to reflect my personal web space, I'm going to go ahead and spend the extra money to reserve .net, .org, and, and similar domain names if they're available, just because I don't want somebody else to be able to reserve a domain name that is too similar to mine. Another point, and all of yours were great, but another point is initials are very hard to remember. And I find a lot of people will try to get initials. If there are four partners in the firm, they'll do KPLG. Well, that is not memorable. You're better off using the first two names of the first two partners rather than using the initials because people can remember that. They can't remember those doggone initials. And, and one other point you made I thought that was really good was about Flash. Flash consumes a lot of bandwidth, and it's slow to load for those who have older machines. But more critical, the search engines can't read anything there. So you've got that Flash intro. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't serve you in search engine optimization, which, curiously enough, is our next topic. You're going, of course, to design for Google because Google is the number one search engine. You'll see different stats, but somewhere between uh, two-thirds and three-fourths of folks search on Google when they're looking for a lawyer. Nobody knows the exact algorithm that Google uses. It's probably more closely guarded than the formula for Coca-Cola. But we do know that they no longer use meta tags. If you don't know what meta tags are, they are words that are in the source code behind the site, not something that you see. 
And for a long time, folks were very dependent upon those. And they'd put in things like personal injury, uh, civil litigation, whatever they happened to do, they'd put their locations in there. But what happened is that people were stacking things up and putting in names of competitors, so they came up when their competitors were searched on. And so Google and most of the other search engines have abandoned using meta tags. So what do they use? Honestly, it's anybody's best guess, but we have some pretty good guesses, and they are based on what other experts think as well. In sort of, but not for sure, order, the domain name is very important. So if you have personalinjurylaw.com uh, and someone searching for a personal injury lawyer, that is certainly going to make you come up more highly. The title of your site, the header, the first thing you see on the site, that's one of the most important things. How rich your content is. And remember, this takes time. You've got to build horizontally. You've got to build depth. It takes a lot of time to get a good, rich site, but it's really worth investing in that time. And every time you, you put more content on your site, you've got more keywords necessarily that the search engine is going to be searching on. One of the most critical factors is the number of inbound links. And these are people who link to you. Google does not place the same weight on reciprocal links where you link to them, they link to you, as they do on linkage to you alone. And they absolutely will discount you if you belong to what they call a link farm where you pay somebody to get you on all of these bogus sites and they're just supposed to list you. But Google knows about those link farms and they have methodologies in place to stop them from uh, helping your, you appear well. So you want to avoid those. Be honest uh, in what you do when you design your site. As, as often as you can, change your page, your website page. It's good now to have a content management system on your website, which many web designers and hosters will offer you. In that case, you can do changes without paying them, which is certainly desirable. All of the headers on your home page, not just the first one, are important. Hyperlink language on the home page is significant, more significant than the language on the home page without the hyperlinks. And don't forget when you have a graphic that you can add an alt tag, which is a name of the graphic. And when you name that graphic, you can give it a name, which also constitutes a keyword and will be read. So should you do it yourself or should you hire someone? Well, the search engine optimization companies out there, I would say the rule is caveat emptor because they tend to want to promise you that if you give them a certain amount of money, then within a certain amount of time, usually a very short amount of time, you're going to see that you're on the first page of the Google ranking. Some of them will promise you the number one slot. They really can't do that. It's not an overnight process. What you want is a company that can move you up the rankings, but it's going to be a slow process. And I would definitely get referrals. A lot of these guys are snake oil salesmen, so be very, very careful. And some web designers actually do search engine optimization as well. But I'll tell you frankly, I've never used a search engine optimization company, and our site, when you search on Computer Forensics Virginia, comes up number one. So I did it all myself just by learning about it. So I think a lot of solo and small firms that have the opportunity to self-educate can probably do themselves a lot of good. Sharon, it's interesting that search engine optimization has become such a buzzword that, that those in the industry now just call it SEO. That's true. <laughs> we talk about it a lot. I would tell you that uh, it may be one of those things where a lawyer investing their own time, you, you've got to examine the cost and benefit analysis of doing it. But I'd, I would give you a personal example. I think one of the most powerful things of all those that Sharon mentioned, and I wouldn't disagree with their order, but is links that link to you using a certain phrase that you think 
people will search for. You know, my personal example is I have a blog called Law Practice Tips. It, it, I didn't really, can't really claim total credit for this, but I had a little bit of an idea. But because when people link to my blog, they link to it by the blog name, Law Practice Tips, if you do that search in Google, it's often number one or, or, or the top three or four out of five, whether you search by the phrase or the three words. So if you, if you have a subspecialty and you can get people to link to your law firm site by using phrases like agricultural law or something like that, I think that really throws you up in the search rankings and, and is a very powerful tool. Good point, Jim. Talking about website design is is something that is uh, all over the map. Do you want to design your website yourself? Or should you hire somebody to do it? And I think the first answer, again, is always hire a professional if you can afford it. But I deal with lawyers trying to retain website designers, and I'm amazed by the wide variety in price. You may have one designer who, who quotes a modest few hundred dollar fee. Often that's under kind of the bait and switch method where they then want to upscale you to new things. Or then you can have a designer that wants to charge you tens of thousands of dollars and you're not exactly sure uh, what you get out of that. So I think the bottom line is that invest a lot of time as well in the website designer. Sharon, what do you think about hiring uh, the local college kid or your neighbor or your relatives to do it? Well, we've seen a lot of that, and I'll tell you, most of the time they do a brilliant job on one browser. So they really don't have the capacity to test across all the various browsers. Most of them will have some shortcoming in the design. When you look at the source code, you go, oh, why'd they do that? So it's, it's, it's problematic. Uh, you know, I, I, for, for the cost, I'll, I'll tell you what I think the cost is for a lot of small practitioners. It should be between two and $5,000. And if you're paying more than that, you're probably paying too much. Find somebody else. Get started with a good design and somebody who knows what they're doing. I don't think that cost is prohibitive for all but the smallest of law firm shops. Well, Sharon, maybe we haven't. I should show you some budgets of some startup Oklahoma <laughs> law firms. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the East Coast part of this. <laughs> I, I would make the point that it's really critically important to have a website in your own domain name. And so if you can only spend a few hundred dollars, it's better to have a website designed by your son's friend or your neighbor uh, than to not have one at all. And so I think that's the most important point. I think you'd probably agree with that, Sharon. You've got to have a website. Absolutely. Got to do that. That is the most important. And maybe you yourself can test on different browsers or have your friends test. I mean, if you need to, to save the money and trim the budget, do what you can. Ask them to go, go out and search on what are the most popular browsers out there, and then give that list to the college student or your son or who's ever helping you, and say, make sure you've tested on these various browsers or your friends have, and maybe that ha halfway solves the problem. It's important when you design your website to figure out who your potential clients are. If you have a business practice and you're wanting mainly small businesses or medium-sized businesses, the site design will look a lot different than if your client is, potential client is Joe Sixpack or you're doing a consumer bankruptcy practice, for example. So spend some time kind of thinking about the, looking at websites that you like and coming up with an idea that you think suits the, the potential market. Sharon's a big believer in humanizing yourself with philanthropy and, and, and mentioning that on your website. Well, it's been helpful, I think. You know, people would rather hire somebody they like, somebody they see as a contributor, so, someone who is involved in the community. 
they simply like those people. And you would always rather do business on the ba basis of people you like and personal relationships. It's not just about buying a screw. Uh, if you're going to buy a professional service, you want to like the people you're going to be working with. So, yeah, I think it works, Jim. A critical word I like to put on websites is help. That's what we lawyers really do is we help people with their legal problems. We help businesses with their legal needs. And so I think that's a great word. But I wouldn't want to try to oversell yourself on the web. Some of the things that we see lawyer television ads and such really kind of turn off a lot of uh, uh, the members of the public. And so I think, I think subtlety is better than uh, overpromising and uh, too much hype on your website. And, and sometimes they want just to get the cheap publicity, like that law firm in Chicago that put up that big billboard that said, life is short, get a divorce, and showed a, a very sexy lady and a, a very sexy gentleman on either end of the billboard. Taking that kind of approach on the Internet probably isn't going to do you any good either. You might get away with it from the point of view of ethics, but from the point of view of bad taste, you've identified who you are, and I don't think most clients are going to go there. It's important to understand that tastes change and the Internet evolves. And so a design of your site that looks great now may look rather dated in just two to three years. So it's always important to go back and revise your website design. I know when Sharon and I were exchanging some PowerPoints uh, back and forth in preparation for this, I sent her a PowerPoint on marketing I did about five years ago, and we both laughed at how dated it looked, even though it was cutting edge at the time. That's absolutely true. It, it changes very, very quickly. And I think in the old days, people would have images of gavels and law books and that sort of thing on their site. Well, that's old hat. Uh, you need to distinguish yourself. You need to have imagination and creativity in your site. I saw recently one of the local firms here in Virginia had a website that basically said in large letters, are you in trouble? We can help. And below that, there's a gentleman being arrested by a police officer. Well, that speaks to the potential client, and that's not something you would have seen in the early days of the website, but it's speaking directly to an audience, and I think that's very effective if you can do that. Find your audience and, and design around the audience. Sharon, let's real quickly cover the uh, checklist of elements that we think should be included in a website. Well, there's a lot of them, and it's difficult for the solos and small firms, certainly. But I think to change the website and make sure it has new content, do that on a regular basis. Nobody can do it all. You can't expand your website overnight, but you can keep coming back to it and add things. You want to make sure that the navigation is very simple, that the website is in plain English, especially if you're attracting directly to clients, not to referring lawyers. You can use newsletters, uh, opt-in, of course, uh, that they can subscribe to. This is a good way to keep in touch with, with clients. I know our own newsletter on our website, Bites in Brief, now reaches over 10,000 folks each month, and that's a massive number, obviously. And it's, it actually reaches an, an unknown number because we have it syndicated in a number of places. So when it's syndicated in large law firms, we have no idea how many people are actually seeing it. You can send uh, or post news articles or news blurbs, and they can subscribe to that as well, which can be very useful. If, if you're a speaker, you put your speaking calendar up, the groups you've spoken for, uh, some way for people to get in touch with you to arrange speaking engagements. All of this will cultivate your, both your website and your visibility in the legal community as well. Um, having a press room is a great idea if you want to engage the media. It also, of course, gives you a chance to kind of promote in a gentle way what you're doing and your achievements and honors. 
I think probably one of the silliest mistakes people make is they don't put full contact information on their home page. At, at all junctures, you want it to be easy for them to see where you are in terms of the street address, what your phone number is, and potentially your email as well. There's been some debate about whether or not you want your email up there, but I have found it extremely useful over the years, and I would I would not have changed that for anything. I've gotten a lot of business over the, uh, my personal email being there, so I think it's a good move. One caveat about that, or, or one the, the opposing, I guess, dissenting opinion to that would be, if you have a firm with several lawyers, then it may make sense to have one contact email on there because it will generate a good amount of spam. And so you may ha want to have one person who filters that and passes it along to the lawyers and not have the lawyer's personal email addresses there. And, and then be mindful of somebody monitoring that box. If, if the person who normally does goes away, that has to be monitored on a very regular basis if you're going to go, go that route. But what some, some people do, I think, Jim, is they'll, they'll take that general email box, and that might be on the home page. But then if you go to the attorney listing, then they have the individual emails. And so that's a good compromise. I think that is a good compromise. And I would note for the solo and small firm lawyer, if you're not an email lawyer and you don't check your email regularly, then don't put it on your web page. <laughs> Another thing that I think I, the, the biggest mistake I see in small law firm web pages is not to have a map to your office and directions with a link on the home page. That's one of those user-friendly things that never changes. And if you're in an urban area where there's a uh, some parking situation or whatever that you want to make the people aware of, that's something you can do one time and it'll be there uh, good forever until you move. So make sure about putting good directions to your office and, and a lot of content. And even though you may not want to have a graphic of your building on the front page of the website, it may make a good good sense to have the, the picture of where they're supposed to be going on, on the map and direction page of your website. There's lots of free content you can give away to get people to give you their email addresses. Free newsletters are, are one way to do that. If you do a lot of news and, and information, you can do a RSS news feed now that uh, people can subscribe to that. One of the problems with free electronic newsletters is that they tend to get caught a lot by spam filters. So you may want to have an individual email that goes out to your clients when they subscribe, advising them to put your newsletter address in their Outlook contacts or do something along that line to help it get past the spam filter. Uh, but any people like things for free, and so a downloadable PDF portfolio about the firm, any kind of online brochures, things like that are also good elements to include in your site. I think one of the most persuasive things to get clients to hire you that can be included on a website is reprints of articles that you've had published in any type of lawyer publications. As you probably know, if you're willing to write an article for your local bar association or state bar association journal, you can often get it published. These publications are often looking for content as well as trial lawyers publications and other law-related publications. But when you then reprint the entire article on your website and note that it was published in the local bar journal publication on such and such day, it gives you an instant air of credibility with visitors to your website. Many people will assume, and often it's rightfully so, that if you were able to get a teaching article published for all of the lawyers in your state, you must be well-versed in a certain subject matter. Another type of thing that is very current, and, and some of you are obviously aware of this because you're listening, but are blogs and podcasts. 
There are about 70 million blogs on the web now, and I haven't checked the number of podcasts. But a blog is a website. It's just a specially designed type of website where posts are made regularly and they are chronologically arranged. So the ease of some of the blog software is astounding. I can go into my blog and do a post about as easy as I could do a web-based email, and they get a wide circulation because they are then passed along through these RSS news feeds. We'll probably talk more at some point in our series about blogs, and we might even do a whole show on blogs. Yeah, we probably have to keep it short on the blogs and the podcast today, but, but I, I would note that I recently read, Jim, that there's 1,200 legal blogs now. So it's still an opening there in the law market for sure. Podcasts, you understand, because you're listening to one now, are just simply Internet radio shows. While they've taken the name of the iPod and can be downloaded to your iPod or other MP3 player, many people just listen to them by clicking on the web and playing them in their normal uh, media player. So I, I find that a lot of people are using podcasts now in their commute time they're either plugging their iPod into a radio or, or using the wireless broadcast feature. And so I think that a lot of people are listening to these and that this is a real growing market. Don't forget, though, whether you do a blog or a podcast, there are a couple of downsides. They require new current content, and, and so they're really constant work. A website that hasn't been updated for four or five or six months really doesn't raise an eyebrow, and it's not even easy to determine from the website how long it's been since it's been updated. But blogs or post, posts are chronologically, and if you haven't posted for five or six weeks, it's evident to everybody that visits your blog. I, I think it's painfully, painfully evident. Let, let's switch over to um, electronic networking now, and we're going we're gonna to move very quickly through a list of, of some of the things you can do. One of the things you can do is join listservs, and it's a kind of online community. One of the very good ones is through the ABA. That's Solo Says. If you're a solo practitioner, you certainly want to join that. You do not have to be a member of the ABA to participate. But there may be other listservs around that have to do with your area of law or your community, your state, your county, whatever. Those are very, very helpful. to become. You get a lot of referrals from those. You can join local, state, or national bars as a volunteer, and you can work today electronically. In the old days, you had to go, you had to shake hands, you had to eat the rubber chicken. Now you're doing it all on the Internet. Much, much easier. You can use your contact list to remember your clients on their birthdays, at holidays, etc. Remember, it costs far more in money and effort to get a new client than it does to retain the old ones. So you want to take care of them. Resist any urge you have to spam, even if you're doing one-on-one, which doesn't violate the Can't Spam Act, and, and you're doing it through your regular email address. People still perceive it as spam if they have no business relationship with you. So I suggest that's a bad idea. Make sure you have an electronic version of your elevator speech, that 15 to 20 second thing that you can do in an elevator that says who you are and how you can help people. Have that as a template so that you can shoot that off whenever you might need to electronically. And then finally, if they approach you by email, get them off email, get them on the phone, because email is only the, the hook. You need to reel that hook in. You're going to do it much more successfully on the phone when they can hear your voice and they hopefully can hear how nice and how bright you are. Much easier to hook a client that way. So get them off the electronic arena and into the personalized arena. At, well, there, it may not be a meeting. It may be a phone call, but that's better than the electrons. 
emails require certain rules of the road to not do negative things, and one is to proofread your email carefully. Whether it's a website, a blog, or an email, flawlessly written content is the key. If you're a person who doesn't have great grammar skills or tends to write in legalese or maybe doesn't worry too much about spelling, those type of things make a big impression on your audience. So be sure and turn on your spell checker and your grammar checker before participating in listservs and other groups. We've talked about this now, and I think everybody's aware of it, but never write an email when you're angry. Uh, the, the nice thing about the old-fashioned practice of law is you could dictate a hot letter to opposing counsel. The secretary would bring it back to you the next morning, and then you could revise it downward. With an email, you can write something horrendous, push send, and then be uh, horribly uh, concerned about it within a few minutes. So always have a signature block. The signature block must include your website, and it should include your email address, even though some people think, well, my email is already in the email. But always have your email address in your signature block. These disclaimers that law lawyers have, I know you may want to do that, and that's up to you. But uh, please make that as minimal as possible. I don't think they're very effective either practically or legally, and they just create verbiage and bulk to your email. Email. And finally, you can use some quotes and phrases, but a self-promotion quote at the bottom of every email really looks tacky. Yeah, I got one the other day that was like six things long, all the great things this guy had done. It, it, it's off-putting, so that's a bad idea. I think it's okay to use smiles because in, in an email, a smile can, can connote that you really are smiling when you're saying something, and those are okay, but those foolish emoticons, I'd avoid those. They're pretty tacky. Uh, be mindful of ethical considerations. We'll probably probably do an entire segment on that in the future. You want to set up client expectations about response time to email, which is a big issue. The same lawyers that don't answer phone calls and don't answer correspondence tend not to answer email. Put it right in your retainer what that expectation is and make sure you have them initial that perhaps separately, uh, along with maybe warning them not to do things from work since that may be, uh, you may break the attorney-client privilege if they're writing you from work. So watch that. What else have we got here? Online communities. Jim, I think that's you. Well, I manage an online community for our bar association called the OBA Net, and it is a web message board, and people exchange a lot of information. You're seeing more and more of those on the web, and some, like Solo says, are done through email. But I just caution you on chat rooms on the Internet. And, and, and generally speaking about the ethics, we'll talk more about it later, but if you can't solicit somebody in person, you can't solicit them electronically via chat room. But we'll talk more about blog comments sometimes become electronic communities. There are communities like Dig and Delicious where people exchange ideas and actually get to know each other, and building relationships is always good towards building your law practice. One of the questions I think Jim and I are asked most often is, what's worthwhile in electronic advertising? And Jim, we may go do another whole segment on this at another time. Very quickly, banner ads are worthless. They have low click-through rates. Don't buy them. Directories, they, lawyers are confused. There are so many of them, all kinds of pricing. They may promise much and deliver very, very little. Some of the big ones, FindLawMartindaleLawyers.com, most people I know have not done very well by those directories. Anecdotally, a few have. So don't put too many eggs in a single basket. That's not probably where you're going to get your return. And make sure you get accurate reporting from them on who's coming to you. Finally, Google keywords. Those are those ads you see to the right when you do a Google 
Google search, and you get those ads on the right, and you get the colored ads at the top. You can buy keywords like personal injury, although that's a very broad one and, and probably a very bad one. But you can lose a lot of money very quickly on those keywords. So you want to make sure that you can cap the amount that you're spending if you're going to try it. This works best for those who have a niche profession, a niche area of the law, and they so they can put something like beverage importation law, you know, very discreet. If you're going to try divorce law, you're not going to make it. Maybe if you also tie it to the area, and that is how they search, you can do it. But again, I would only try it a little bit to see if it works. And there are great resources out there. There is a book on the guide to Google keywords, which you can find on Amazon, and we'll make sure we put that on, on the website as well. And let's talk about coordinating print and electronic marketing, Jim. If you're going to spend time to develop this domain name, you want to make sure and include it on your business cards, on your stationery, and in lots of different ways. In fact, you may even want to have a little sign in the office that, that notice what your domain name is for people that have represented you've represented for a long time and aren't aware that you have an Internet presence. So make sure and coordinate that. Real quick, that we've given everybody a lot of things to do, and it may seem overwhelming. The most important thing is to not be so overwhelmed that you don't take any action. How do you start out? Recognize that you can't do it all. Understand that retaining your clients is more important and easier than getting new ones. So spend time thinking about how your electronic communications interact with the clients you have now. Make a list of things you want to do, but only try to do the top two or maybe three. Reserve a little bit of time for yourself. Make an appointment for yourself this next week to spend two hours on developing your firm's electronic marketing. And then just try a few different things. Have fun with it. Don't spend too much money on any one thing. But as Sharon says, you always want to measure the results and figure out if it's really doing any good for you. And because marketing is a long-term process, that's definitely a little difficult. We're going to include a lot more links on electronic marketing, some articles by some friends of ours and some other professionals, and that will be posted on the eZine Law Technology Today, where many of you first found this podcast. That's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.